Every child in Beverly Valley knew that Mr. and Mrs. Hobson down on Maplewood Drive gave out the best candy. It wasn't even just candy. That was the best part. They gave out sticky pink popcorn balls and caramel apples, and one year they even gave out toy whistles. That sure pissed off all of our parents for a good few weeks. Each year, children flocked to their house, eager to be the first to knock on that door and show off their costumes. The Hobsons had a serious appreciation for costumes. On that night, they could make every child feel like they'd actually become whatever it was they sought out to impersonate, from dinosaurs to dragons to princesses to witches. Yeah, Halloween in Beverly Valley was the most important night of the year. At least to us children it was. I like to think that the Hobsons felt the same. I suppose I'll never know for certain, though. They passed away when I was 12. Well, passed away is probably not the most accurate choice of words, though it is the most merciful. You see, one Halloween, a few neighborhood teenagers decided to break into the Hobsons' home after all the trick-or-treating had ended. They were real delinquents. I remember one of them, his name was Matthew Torres, but everyone called him Pigfucker because, I don't know, he looked like he wanted to fuck pigs. Anyway, Pigfucker and his gang broke into the house. The Hobsons, of course, were already asleep. Not that that mattered to them. I don't know all the details of what those boys did, but when the morning came, it was horrifying. The crime scene photos were never made public. All most people know is that the torture had gone on for hours, and they had done unspeakable things to the both of them. It wasn't long before they were caught, of course, and sentenced to life in prison, but that hardly seemed like justice for what they'd done to, perhaps, the two nicest people in all of Beverly Valley. No justice could mend what had broken in our little town that night. For a few years after that, Halloween just didn't happen in our neighborhood. It was too dangerous, everyone said. But that was a lie, a cover-up. The truth was, we all felt that Halloween had died that night with the Hobsons. But time moves quickly and people move on. Eventually kids start trick-or-treating again. Only a few at first, but as the years pass by, the holiday festivities come back in full force. And we all try to pretend that the Hobsons had never existed. I was doing a pretty good job of it too until the year I turned 18 and my mom asked me to bring my little cousin Danny out trick-or-treating. That's a night I don't think I'll ever forget. Make sure you bring her home by 10. My Aunt Priscilla was finishing up Danny's hat, having used about 100 bobby pins to keep it in place. She made a perfect little witch with her broomstick and stuffed black cat. She was wearing an orange skirt with a black spider web stitched over it and a lacy top with long, draping black sleeves. She had been practicing her witch's cackle all week. It was incredibly adorable. So much so that I didn't even mind that I'd be sacrificing a night to take her out trick-or-treating. Besides, even at eight years old, Danny was incredibly well-behaved and a joy to be around. She and I always had a good time together. Are you ready to go, your terribleness? I asked, holding out my hand. She accepted it and answered with a cackle she was so proud of. I grinned. I'll take that as a yes. Come on, we better get a move on or the best candy will be gone.
I felt a small twinge at that, remembering what the word best used to mean on Halloween, but I pushed it away as we walked out the door together. See you later, Aunt Priscilla. Be good, you two. And with that, we were off. I could bore you with the details of what a great night we had together, all the houses we visited and the praise that Danny got for being the best little witch anyone could have ever seen. I could dwell on that moment that Danny told me it had been her best Halloween ever, knowing that I was the one who had made that happen. But you're not here for a happy story, are you? Of course not. Given the choice, humans would rather watch a train wreck than a sunrise. Well, here comes the train. It was getting around to be 9.30 when I decided it was time to start heading back home. We were in familiar territory, and it wouldn't take long to get back, but I figured we'd have a few more stops along the way, so it was better safe than sorry. This was back before I had a cell phone, and I didn't want Aunt Priscilla to worry. Just as we were leaving the Johnson house, a group of guys pulled up in a beat-up old Chevy. I recognized them as some friends from school. Hey, Seamus. Have you seen Willem around tonight? We can't find the idiot anywhere. Seems like he wandered off drunk again. That's when I made my mistake. I shifted my attention just for a minute to answer my friends and give my two cents on where Willem might have dragged his drunk ass this time. After all, Danny was always so good, I figured she would stay by me and wait until I was done talking to my buddies. I was wrong. Once the guys had driven off, I glanced down to my right and realized that Danny wasn't there like she was supposed to be. I looked around the yard, my alarm growing at a steady rate as I realized I'd lost track of her. Oh god. My heart began to constrict in my chest and my throat closed up. Fuck. Fuck. <sighs> okay, calm down. We're in our own neighborhood, we're close to home, she can't be that far. And that's when I saw something. Just a glimmer of orange down the street. The same shade as Danny's skirt. I thought it would bring me relief, but it didn't. Would you like to know why? Because I recognized that street she was walking down. Maplewood Drive. And I recognized the house she was walking towards. The Hobson place. Danny, no! Get away from there! I screamed. It was like she didn't even hear me. I started sprinting for her just as she reached the front porch steps. I told myself I was scared because that house attracted weirdos, and who knows what they would do if they got their hands on that little girl. I told myself I was running because the wood was rotted and she could fall through and hurt herself if I didn't stop her. I told myself a lot of things as I watched her walk to the front step and ring the doorbell. They were all lies. In reality, I was afraid of something else. I just didn't know quite what it was yet. As Danny stood there in front of the door, waiting for someone who would never come, my heartbeat slowed down infinitesimally. Everything would be okay. I'd get up those stairs and grab her and take her home and everything would be just fine as always. 
except that's not what happened. You see, just as I reached the end of the yard, the door opened. I stumbled to a halt, half paralyzed with both fear and confusion. Nobody lived in that place anymore. Nobody would dare. And as I stood there, about as useful as a goddamn stump, a hand reached out. It was withered, its leathery skin blackened with age and something else. Burn marks, maybe. It was dark, and I couldn't see clearly enough to say for certain. As I wasted my time staring at it, the dark hand crooked a finger. It was beckoning Danny inside. Jesus Christ, Danny, no! She didn't even flinch. She stepped over the threshold and the door creaked closed behind her. I followed behind just a little too late, always a little too late. Even in my nightmares, or are they memories, it makes no difference to me. As gently as the door had opened before, it slammed against the wall in an equal show of violence as I barged my way into the house. Danny! Danny, where are you? I tried not to notice the house and how much it had changed since the last time I'd seen it. The interior of the house, what I could see from the door each year anyway, was once warm, bright, and meticulously clean. It was a far cry from the destitute, rotting wood and sagging floorboards that surrounded me as I searched for my cousin. It was like a strange sort of parody of the Hobson house, and it so disgusted me that I thought for one brief moment I was going to throw up all over the floor. But there was no time for that. Danny was inside with something, and I had to find her. Swallowing my gorge down, I rushed through the hallways, trying to find a clue, any clue, as to where she might have gone. It came to me in the form of an open door and a tinkling laugh. It belonged to Danny without a doubt. As I approached the door, I was dismayed to realize that it led to a basement. A cold, stark light cut through the darkness, emanating from somewhere deep inside the bowels of the house, taunting me even as it called to me. Taking a deep breath and ignoring the stale taste of the air, I began my descent into that strange light. It seemed like a century later when I finally reached the bottom of the stairs. Each step down was a war against my own instincts that screamed at me to run. I had to remind myself continually of the little girl I was surely going to save, of my responsibility to her and my aunt and my whole family. It was painful and it was slow, but I made progress. At last, I reached the landing and stepped out into the basement proper. I didn't see Danny right away. Remember what I said about train wrecks and sunrises? Don't think I was trying to exclude myself from that precious facet of human nature. Of course, the thing I saw wasn't what I'd been looking for, or what I wanted to see. Instead, I saw carnage. There were bodies scattered all over the floor, torn apart into so many pieces that it was impossible to discern what belonged to whom. There was no way the victims could still be alive, and yet their wailing screams filled the air. It was a wonder that I hadn't heard it, really, as I walked down to the basement. If I had, I might have taken the coward's way out and run for my life. 
Among the quivering masses of flesh that begged for mercy and for death moved two strange figures. The first was tall, with a frame so thin it looked as though it might collapse on itself. I recognized the hand attached to it, the one that had beckoned Danny into the house. Its whole skin was charred and black. It swayed in the middle of the floor, casting its eyes as though looking for something. Those eyes were completely white, milky even, as though covered with cataracts. Eventually it found what it was looking for. A juicy piece of meat, still attached to what must have been a leg bone. It bent down slowly, its joints creaking and its body swaying under the strain and pulled the meat from the bone with its long, hooked fingers. Someone screamed in terrible pain as it lifted the flesh to its mouth, sucking the blood and chewing slowly, almost thoughtfully. It was a long few moments before I tore my attention away and took stock of its companion. This figure was shorter, its flesh only slightly burned. What wasn't burned was rotted, hanging loose to give me a peek at its slimy bones. Barbed wire was wrapped around its body, which, horrifying as it was, seemed to be holding its flesh together. Its abdomen was cut open and its intestines trailed out, leaving an oozing trail of blood in its wake. It, too, was searching for flesh, trying to find something to appease its hunger. Its maw opened wide in a parody of a smile as it spotted a ripped-open torso with a still-beating heart on display. It knelt down and tore into the muscle with its sharp little teeth, crouched on the floor like a beast, making sickening slurping noises. Shaking, I thought to myself. I was shaking and my body felt like it was shutting down. I wondered if I was going into shock. I wondered if I'd be alive long enough for that to matter. And then I saw her. Danny. My... Danny, standing across the room. She was holding a head in her hands, its spinal cord attached and dragging along the filthy floor. It possessed an ugly, disgusting face that I'd known anywhere. Pigfucker. Look what I found, Seamus. She grinned and held the head out toward me. It was screaming in agony. I began to feel dizzy. Trick or treat, she giggled. The two carnivorous figures noticed me then. The tall charged one gave me a thin smile, its teeth bared. We got them in the end, didn't we? It rasped, its voice decayed from disuse. The rotting figure laughed. Just then, a low, ugly animal sound I couldn't bear to stay a moment longer. I abandoned Danny and I ran up the stairs, her witch's cackle following me like a curse. I tore through the house and ran out the front door, hoping against hope that I would make it out in one piece, trying to tell myself that it would all prove to be a strange sort of dream if I could only get away from that goddamn place. As I reached the end of the yard, just before I was able to cross over to the sidewalk, I thought I heard a voice, a low whisper in the wind that couldn't possibly be there. Happy Halloween, kid. I never made it to the road. 
I passed out right there at the edge of the yard. Just to be clear, Danny was never in the Hobson house. At least that's what they told me when I woke up in the hospital, screaming that somebody had to save her, even though she had been bewitched by something sick and twisted festering in the basement. No. Danny was safely at the Johnson house the whole time I was conducting my frantic search. She turned back to me for a few moments while I spoke with my friends, exchanging some candy with a fellow trick-or-treater. By the time she'd finished her trade, I was gone. Miss Johnson had called my aunt immediately, who was furious at first, but eventually concerned when nobody could find me. I was only in that house for 20 minutes at most. At least that's what I thought. Turns out I was missing for more than four hours. They found me shivering on the ground in front of the Hobson place, unresponsive and crying. They told me by the time I was brought to the hospital, I was completely unconscious and just wouldn't wake up. They said that I had remained unconscious for a week. They wanted to know what happened. And when I told them, they started to talk about other things. Things like PTSD and hallucinations and psychosis and trauma. They didn't even pretend to believe me, but I knew what I saw. Nobody could convince me otherwise. Even when the police came and told me that they'd been through the house and found nothing, I knew the truth. I was rewarded with a brief stint and a mental ward for my stubbornness. Eventually, I learned to lie and to play the game. I pretended to be normal and healthy, and it fooled everyone, even me. They let me out after a few months, and I went back to life as usual. I moved away to college, and I let them believe I'd left the Hobson house in the past. They were fools falling for that ruse. As soon as I was away from Beverly Valley, I did a little research. I needed answers, and I wasn't getting them from anyone in my hometown, especially not from those people who knew about my... incident. Google, however, proved to be very informative. Do you know what I learned? I learned the sordid details about what happened to the Hobsons. About how Mr. Hobson was skinned alive, blinded, and burned to death. About how Mrs. Hobson was eviscerated, bound with barbed wire, and split open at the mouth with a pair of old scissors. They believe she died last, lying next to her husband as his body burned into ash. But that's not all. I did a little research on Pigfucker, too, and his friends, at least those whose names I remembered or could find. Dead. Every single one. They'd all died within a few months after the murders. Pigfucker had been knifed to death by another inmate. A few of the others had committed suicide out of guilt. One had a heart attack and was found dead in his cot the next morning. I... I know the truth. I don't talk about the Hobson house anymore. This is the only count that will ever exist of my experiences. Just like everyone else in Beverly Valley, I pretend that it doesn't exist. I try to forget Halloween's past. 
I shut away all the memories and nightmares as best I can, but sometimes, when it's late at night and sleep is evading me, I think back to that awful sight of Mr. Hobson and Mrs. Hobson torturing their murderers, feasting on their flesh, terrible caricatures of themselves, damned to eternity and damning in return. And I can't help but agree with what Mr. Hobson said. It seems that they did get them in the end. Before we get into the next story tonight, I wanted to remind you all that you can become a member of the channel or become a patron over on Patreon and support me and what I do here for just $1 a month. If you do so, you'll get videos a day in advance, and like I said, you'll be helping me. And it's really, really cool that so many people have already decided to do that, so why not join them and get videos a day early and become a member or a patron? Anyways, let's get right into the next story for tonight. When I was in college, I worked for a local flower shop. The store was owned by an old man named Tolliver, who had bought the place a few years earlier when he moved to town. He had no particular love of flowers, but he said that he needed a fresh start and the business had been for sale, so he took it as a sign. Judging from my few months there, he was never going to get rich from owning the place, but we did enough business for him to pay more than most places would have offered a kid my age. As you might imagine, our biggest business came from weddings and funerals, and over time I'd grown accustomed to dealing with the finicky fiancés and bleaky numb bereaved that so often came through our door and called in an order. It was rare that I remembered anyone past the parting jingle of the jostle bell above the doors they departed. But then again, I'd never encountered someone like Mr. Dorman. I hadn't looked up when he first entered the shop, and when I did, I took a step back in surprise and fear. He was a wall of a man, nearly seven feet tall and twice the width of my narrow frame. The long black raincoat he wore hung off him awkwardly, as though the angles were wrong underneath, and his face was broad and hard, with pale skin so smooth it almost looked artificial, poreless and disturbing in its symmetrical perfection. And not just poreless, but hairless as well. The man wore a red knit cap, but I could see no sign of hair on his head or face, not even eyebrows. I began to wonder if he was a cancer patient or burn victim, but was brought out of my thoughts by the deep rumbling in the man's voice. Is he here? His eyes were a flinty blue that seemed to almost glow in the shadows of his low jutting brow. They landed on me briefly as they canvassed the store beyond the counter. I blinked. Uh, sorry, sir. Uh, is who here? The man's gaze fell on me again, his mouth puckering slightly as though he tasted something sour. Templeton, or Tolliver. He put his hands on the counter between us with a muffled thump. I glanced down to see his hands were covered in leather gloves that creaked as he squeezed his fists. Is he here? Swallowing, I shook my head. Uh, no. Sorry, can can I get your name or 
Can I help you with something? The man's expression didn't change. My name's Mr. Dorman. And no, only he can give me what I want. He glanced around the store. When will he return? Glancing at the clock, I saw it was nearly four. Tolliver usually took off from two until 4.30 before coming back to work until six or seven most nights. But I didn't want to tell this guy that. Mainly out of fear he'd decide he'd just wait half an hour. I didn't want him hanging around and I wanted to warn Tolliver before the guy found him. I had no idea what this strange man wanted from him, but I didn't have a good feeling about it. So looking back at Dorman, I lied. I told him Tolliver would be on a trip until that Friday. The man did show slight emotion then, and a small grimace followed by a nod. Very well. Until then, I will wait. For a panicked moment, I thought he was going to try and wait there, as crazy as it was. But then he turned and headed for the door, surprisingly quiet as he made his way out in the afternoon light before disappearing out of sight. The only sign he'd ever been there were the fading sounds of the bell on the door and the frantic thudding in my heart. I called Tolliver immediately. Normally a very calm and jovial man, he grew very quiet for several moments, and when he did speak, his tone was deadly serious. John, I want you to close the store immediately, and it's going to stay closed at least for a few days. I'll keep paying you for now, of course. None of this is your fault. If I find I can't reopen in the long term, I'll let you know in advance before I have to stop your pay. Thank you for warning me. I went to respond, but the line was already dead. I thought about calling back, but decided against it. It's none of my business. Maybe Tolliver was into something shady or owned money to a loan shark or something. Either way, I didn't need to rock the boat if he was going to keep paying me. For now, I should just do as he said and close up shop. And that's exactly what I did. For the next two weeks, I waited for word from Tolliver, but none came. I even went by a store a couple of times, but it was closed up tight with no sign of my boss having been around. I knew he was still in town, or had been a few days earlier because I got a month's pay mailed me with a local postmark that Tuesday. And sure, I didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I was also kind of worried about my boss. Tolliver was old and a little weird, but he was also a really nice man. He was funny and patient and had always treated me well. If I didn't know him because of the money, I felt like I at least owed something to him for being a good guy. So one night after class, I went to his house. It was a small farmhouse on the edge of town, and everything looked as I'd seen it except for the lawn. Tolliver normally never let his grass grow more than a week or two without cutting it, but now there were weeds up past my knees. Frowning, I made my way up to the front door and knocked. It took a few tries, but he finally came to the door. He sounded relieved when he heard it was me, but he still seemed reluctant to open up. Wincing inwardly, I pushed the issue. I just wanted to check on him, I said, talk to him for a minute, make sure he was okay. After a moment of silence, he opened the door and hurriedly beckoned me to come in. 
his eyes looking past me into the deepening gloom of the night. The light in the front hall was dim, but enough for me to be shocked at Tolliver's appearance. Normally a fastidiously neat and clean-shaven man, he was now sporting at least a couple of weeks of beard growth and looked as though he might not have bathed in nearly as long. He shut the door quickly behind me and threw the deadbolt before turning to look at me with an expression that... <sighs> the man looked terrified. Voice shaking, I blurted out the question I'd been pondering for so long. What's wrong? What's going on, Mr. Tolliver? Who's that doorman fella? He was shaking his head, and I could already tell that he was regretting letting me in. Doesn't matter, my boy. It'll be settled one way or the other soon enough. I could smell a wash of alcohol flow over me at his words, and as he stood there in his dirty bathrobe, I realized he was unsteady on his feet. He was drunk. A part of me, the scared, selfish college boy part of me, didn't want to hassle or deal with anyone else's shit. Wanted to leave right then and there, to extract myself from whatever this drama that this old man had going on and just find another job somewhere. It would be easy, and I could justify it by telling myself it wasn't my business and he didn't want my help anyway. But looking at him in that hallway, he looked so frail, so tired and used up, like a faded photograph of the man I'd known and grown to like and respect over just the past few months. Something was really wrong, I thought. Something he couldn't get out of by himself, and maybe I couldn't help him either. But I knew I had to try. Mr. Tolliver, please, just tell me, okay? Do you owe Mr. Dumman money or something? Do we need to call the cops? His eyes widened slightly. And at first, I thought he was angry. But then he let out a wet laugh and waved his hand. No, no, that won't do any good. They'd never find him. Never stop him if they did. He's coming for me, you see. To finish the path we set him on. Tolliver wiped at his face as he looked back up. I saw I was crying. I... I don't understand. I think we should just call the cops, or... I can tell him to leave you alone if he comes around again. I let out a small yelp as Tolliver suddenly lunged forward and gripped my shirt with a surprising strength. No. No, John, you stay away from him, from this. He will break you if you stand in his way. I put my hands on his arms gently. Please, tell me what's going on. Please. Oliver didn't release my shirt, but instead fell into it, crying softly against my chest for several moments before I began to speak. Someone was killing the children. It was when I was a young man. I had a family, a little girl and a beautiful wife. We lived in a small town near Warsaw, and for three months, a child had been taken every new moon. Every time we found what was left of them three days hanging across the limbs of a tree near the child's home. We'd questioned everyone, searched out every stranger, patrolled the streets at night. It didn't matter. When the sky was black, 
a fourth time, our own little girl was taken. My wife found her on the third morning, hanging from a maple tree we'd planted the year we got married. It broke her, and broke both of us. In my grief, my rage, I abandoned her to mourn alone. I poured all my energy into one thing. Revenge. There were ways, old ways known to me and some others, ways of fashioning tools and giving them a kind of life. We just needed such a tool to find whoever had done this to our children. Something that was strong and ruthless, relentless and cunning. Something to exact vengeance, justice, punishment. So we made a man out of stone and clay. It wasn't as difficult as you may think. There are methods and words that must be exact, but the most important part was the intention. We poured our grief and rage and guilt into that thing until it blazed with a manner of rough life, a burning will so hot that our tears sizzled away on its stony skin. And when its eyes opened, it rose and set off on its hunt without a single word or complaint. After it went out that first night, I returned home with a lighter heart. I would wait to tell my beloved Bietta what we'd done once the bastard had been caught, but I vowed to myself from that point onward I would devote myself only to her. Any anger or accusation I felt towards her or towards myself would leave me once the killer had been expunged from this world. When I lay down beside her that night, I slept well for the first time in weeks. The man who'd killed those girls was found dead the next morning, though not by our creature's hand. A pig farmer on the edge of town, he'd hunged himself two days earlier and left a note describing his sins and his remorse. Bits of hair belonging to the girls, including my Maria, were found among his belongings, and there was no sign that anyone else had helped the man commit these horrors. It was suddenly all just... over. Or so we thought. We didn't know where the creature we'd created had gone to, but as the days came and went, our group's consensus was that it had likely been released as soon as its work was done. Perhaps it had even found the man's body and wandered out into his field before tumbling apart like so much rock and mud. Those were the guesses and hopes of fools, myself included. We hadn't understood the nature of what we had conjured or the brutal calculus by which it operates, but it wasn't long before we began to learn both far too well. The parents of the first little boy that had been taken were found torn apart in their home. Two nights later, the mother of the second child, just an infant at the time of their murder, was found dismembered in her front yard. As with the first killings, someone or something had broken through her front door and chased her outside before plucking her limbs off like petals from a flower. By this point, the few of us that remained had begun to understand what was happening, even if we didn't know why. After all these years, however, I think I do. It's what we put in it, you see. Not just our hatred and blame for the insane man who killed our babies, but our guilt and loathing for ourselves and our wives and our husbands. When we knelt over that creature and gave it a measure of our life and our pain, we weren't just creating it. We were teaching it.
molding it with our hearts just as we had with our hands, showing it the faces of everyone we blamed, even our own. Tolliver's lip quivered as he looked up at me. I tried to save Pieta. I did. We ran to this country, and for nearly ten years there was no sign of it. And then one night, it came, and boom, boom, boom. We both screamed as the front door squealed and then shattered. Feeling the void left behind was the man I'd seen in the flower shop weeks before, though now he was stripped bare. He stepped inside, his pale, perfect skin glowing in the soft light of the hall. He was completely hairless, but that wasn't all. He had no nipples, no genitals, no belly button, no toenails at the ends of his white, misshapen toes. And then there were his hands. His skin grew scaly at the wrist before hardening into something that reminded me of concrete mixed with jagged rock. It seemed impossible, but that stone was alive, moving and flexing as he lunged forward and snatched Tolliver away from me. My friend had the chance to scream, but he didn't. Instead, he used his last moment to find my eyes and mouth a single word. Run. I heard about his murder the next day, and though it sickened me, I pretended to be surprised. The creature hadn't tried to stop me, and though I spent the next few nights terrified by every sound, I had the feeling that it wouldn't try to hurt me now that its work was done. Maybe, I thought, if Tolliver was the last life holding it together, it really had finally gone off into the woods to die. It was a nice thought, and it lasted until Tolliver's funeral. I was one of only a dozen people there, and the thought of maybe being the closest thing the man had left to a friend or family only added to the sad loneliness of the whole thing. I felt guilty that I'd run, that I hadn't done more to save him, but what could I hope to do against something like that? It wasn't something I understood or could fight. So instead, I'd sit there and feel sorry for him and myself because there was no one else to. There was a man at the edge of the cemetery. Even at a distance, even wearing that long, misshapen coat, I was struck by the size of the man and the magnitude of his malign presence. Suppressing a shudder, I glanced away before forcing myself to look back. He was still there, still watching, and it felt like his hard blue eyes were burning into me. For a panicked moment, I almost got up and ran again, but then I thought better of it. No. It wasn't there for me. I had nothing to do with this. This was about Tolliver, not me. And now it was done. As if reading my thoughts, the thing turned slightly, and now I knew it was looking at me. Staring in horror, I saw its pale face split into a terrible smile as it raised an arm and gave me a little wave. 
The gloves were gone now, but there was no clay or jagged stone glittering in the afternoon sun. The hands were made of flesh, pink, and baby fresh, and as he waggled his fingers at me, my gorge began to rise. I did get up now, stumbling a few yards away to wrench against a headstone before turning back to glance apologetically to the attendants and to gaze at the empty lawn beyond. He was gone. 